on March 13th, 2011, my former pastor, Brother Mike Witt, began preaching through the book of Romans. The conviction that drove him to preach through this letter was due to its focus, how to be right with God. As Mike passed away just a few years later, I picked up where he left off in Romans chapter 8. and all total, we preached over 117 messages on the book of Romans. Why would you have that long of a study on a singular book? Well, that's because the book of Romans is not just another letter to a local church. Often called the Gospel according to Paul, the book of Romans was inspired by the Holy Spirit to be a theological treatise that gives us the most complete explanation of the gospel that we have in the biblical record. In fact, think about it this way, about why the book of Romans is worth your personal study. The book of Romans gives the structure to every Christian testimony. What my life was like before I met Jesus, what, did I, what I needed to know in order to believe in Jesus, what happened at salvation, and where I find my spiritual strength and assurance, and now what my life should look like after trusting in Jesus. So today, our focus is that theological treatise, that book, that letter, that explanation of the gospel, and that justification of God's righteousness in dealing with our sin in Jesus. So without delay, let's dive into understanding the book of Romans and why Paul wrote it. Open up to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and let's begin just right there with Paul's focus. See, the church in Rome was most likely started by Jewish Christians who were converted at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Upon being driven out of Jerusalem, they took the gospel back to Rome and established a Christian community there. And so Paul wrote the letter to the church in Rome around the end of his third missionary journey. He'd never been to the church in Rome, but had heard about its existence. And so we might wonder, as opposed to many of the other letters that Paul wrote, where he planted those churches and he had personal experiences with the, with the Christians there in those church, churches, why would Paul write his most extensive explanation of the gospel to a church that he'd never been to? Well, I believe that Paul saw Rome as a crucial stepping stone to taking the gospel to the rest of the known world at the time, which was Spain. Now, we think of the world now, we look at a map, and we think about the world as a, a much larger uh, place than Paul did at the time. But Paul, uh, as he was considering his own missionary task, he knew that modern-day Spain was the ends of the earth. And yet, he also knew based on what we know about the book of Acts and how it was, and uh, the, the story it tells about Paul's life, I think it's possible that Paul knew he was living as a marked man and that he might be arrested or die before he ever made it to Rome. And so Paul looks to write the letter to the church in Rome or to the Romans 
to give a thorough explanation of the gospel to benefit them as a church, but also to invite them to partner with him as he takes the gospel to the ends of the earth, and that if something happened to him, that they might finish the task. And so in Romans 1, verse 16, Paul gives what is considered to be the theme verse of the book of Romans. Romans 1, 16 and 17, this is the core of the gospel, and this is why he has devoted his life to preach it and, and preach it solely. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, the good news about Jesus is the key to unleashing the power of God upon the human condition. From beginning to end, our response, the only response that we can have, aside from rejection, is faith. There's no in-between. There's no faith plus works. There's no faith plus anything else. There's faith alone. And this is not just true for the moment of our conversion, but for the entirety of our life of salvation. At no point in your life are you called to live in your own strength, but rather in the power of God that is at work with you within you by faith. That's why Paul says that it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes and that it is revealed from faith for faith. It's faith to faith to faith to faith to faith. That's our only response at every step. Now, it would do us well to pay attention to this book because without protests, without boycotts, and without social media and megachurches, this gospel, which is the power of God, was taken by Paul and missionaries like him and, and, and the Roman church and churches like the Roman church, and they, and they reached the known world at the time. And in this case, they reached the most historically significant city that has ever been known. The compelling love of God from the book of Romans drove the Christians there to take in abandoned babies, for instance, to restore dignity to slaves, and to die for what they believed in. The result of the gospel was not just individual transformation, but absolute cultural transformation. Just like Chuck Colson says that those who embrace the gospel and the biblical worldview cannot they they don't just transform a culture but they create a new culture that's what happened in the book of rome i mean in the book of romans and in the city of rome which is why which is why paul refers to it as the power of god and so in romans we see the god of righteousness as we saw in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So let's look at an overview. What is the gospel according to Paul? What's an overview of the book of Romans? Well, it, it breaks down quite nicely into three sections. Chapters 1 through 8 are the power of God described. Then chapters 9 through 11 are the power of God defended. Then chapters 12 through 16 are the power of God displayed. So three sections, 1 through 8, the power of God described, 9 through 11, the power of God defended, and 12 through 16, the power of God 
displayed. So let's give a brief overview of each one of those sections because they're, once again, if you want to understand the the meat of the individual verses that make up the text, you have to understand this big picture. So what is the power of God described in Romans 1 through 8? Well, what did God have to do to make us righteous? That is, put us back in a right relationship with him, or at least open the door so that we could be back into a a right relationship with him. Well, Romans 1 through 3 tells us that the first thing God had to do was to deal with our sinfulness and our brokenness. That is the very presence of evil inside the human heart. Johnny Depp, the famous actor, he was commenting on his dark performance of a gangster in the drama Black Mass. And listen to what he said. He said, I found the evil in myself a long time ago, and I've accepted it. (laughs) I've accepted it. He says, we're old friends. And no doubt that's one of the reasons that Johnny Depp has found himself in the kind of trouble that he's been in throughout his career is because he's just come to accept his old friend evil inside of him. And this is not just Johnny Depp's problem. This is the problem with humanity. You see, in making peace with our wicked motivations and our evil actions, we become enemies of God. In fact, look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul goes on throughout the rest of Romans 1 to say that men and women have taken the knowledge of God, that is the vitality and energy that God has given them and the bodies that God has given them, and they have used it for their own pleasures rather than giving honor to God and living for His glory. You see, that's what we were created to do, but sin has corrupted the design of human beings. And so this hasn't just led them to a few different kinds of evil. This has led them to every kind of evil. Every kind of evil. It says in verse 29 of chapter 1, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Inventors of evil. You could say inventors of every kind of evil. And while Paul may be describing some of the things that went on in the Gentile world in Romans chapter 1, in Romans chapter 2, he shows that Jews are not immune to this. The Jewish people that Paul had been, or the Jewish system that Paul had been delivered from was a system of do-it-yourself righteousness in which the Pharisees, of which Paul was one of the one of the choice ones, up-and-coming ones, as before he had his Damascus Road experience, they were they they had become masters at justifying their own sin while putting laws on others to try to uh, keep themselves in power. You see, the Jews were not immune to the unrighteousness and the invention of evil that was known among the Gentiles. They had just masked it differently. They had the law, but that very law condemned them. And so Paul goes into Romans chapter three expressing that this is everyone's condition. We are all unrighteous, all of us. No no one's righteous. No, not one, as he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. 
In Romans 3.23, he echoes that when he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no distinction. Jews, Gentiles, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. And so what would God do in order to deal with this sin which had ruined us? Well, he could have left us there. He could have left us in our sin, and we were all we we're all condemned to death row. But in this very pivotal section here in Romans chapter 3, really the culmination of the first three chapters in verse 24, he says that God does a work. It's a work of justification. Look in verse 24. He says, He says, even though all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that God has opened the door to where all can be justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. He says this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. So all the past is covered through the cross and to show God's righteousness that He wasn't unrighteous for not punishing the sins of the people there uh, before Christ died on the cross. He had he had forborne those sins, so as he was looking forward to the cross, and now, in every present time after the cross, he can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus because of him looking back on the cross. And so this is God's answer to the sinfulness of our condition. This is his response. We didn't need more education. He, he didn't send just a teacher. We didn't need uh, a political leader. He didn't send a politician. He sent a savior because we needed to be saved from our sins. And in fact, the cross is a, a beautiful picture of this. Think of it. The, the, two, the two bars intersecting, the vertical beam, in, some, in one sense, uh, it, it, it represents God's wrath on sin. And then the cross beam represents God's mercy extended to all the world. And Jesus nailed to that cross, has arms wide open. And in one sense, Jesus is opening the door once and for all. But entering in is not a matter of it just being an automatic part of life. No, in fact, in Romans chapter 4, Paul goes on to say that, that it is by faith apart from works of the law, that we are justified. And that he, he actually proves that by going all the way back to Abraham. The, the father of the, of the Jews, Abraham, in verse 3, it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He didn't work. He didn't endure. In fact, if you look at Abraham's life, he, he failed at many points. But at the critical moment, he believed God, and that belief was counted or credited to him as righteousness. And then what does that belief bring? Romans chapter 5, verse 1 tells us very clearly that it brings peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to talk about that, that while that faith brings peace with God, he kind of zooms in and examines the particulars of how that peace is accomplished. One day when I stand before God, I will stand in the work of either one of two people. I'll either stand in the work of Adam, representing the works of the flesh, my 
forefather according to my natural birth, or I will stand in Jesus, representing the finished God, finished work of God on my behalf, the work that I can solely trust in. Naturally, I am walking in the works of Adam and the works of my flesh. But being if I'm born again by faith in the finished work of Jesus, then I am always and forever looking back to that finished work and trusting in it to be my daily provision of righteousness. And so this peace that God brings us is absolute. It's complete. And some see this as a reason to sin. And Paul addresses that in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, what are we to say? What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, by no means. In actuality, this grace compels me to present my entire self to be used for God's purposes. And a verse to highlight is chapter 6, verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. So the response of faith generates a practical response of presentation, presenting our members, our hands, our feet, our tongues, our brains, our mouths, everything, presenting them to God as an instrument of righteousness. This is our ongoing response of faith. And this doesn't mean that we never struggle with sin. In fact, when you move to Romans chapter 7, Paul expresses in a very personal way, he makes himself very vulnerable by saying there's a war going on within us. This battle rages. But God has given us victory by declaring us righteous and justified and free from condemnation. And that brings us to the beginning of Romans chapter 8. That very famous verse, Romans chapter 8 verse 1, that beholding all that God has done in the first seven chapters, he declares that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And from there, Paul begins to exult in how the Spirit works in sanctifying us and one day glorifying us. That's why many have called this the greatest chapter in all the Bible, the Mount Everest of the Bible. It begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. You see, the result of Christ's work and our faith in it is that the Spirit now takes up residence inside of us to implement the righteousness of Christ in our sanctification. He sanctifies us. He makes us holy. And this is our assurance of victory which is our unity with him. And this is not just some distant unity where we call him king. No, the Spirit enables us to say, Abba, Father, and he is our fountain of hope, the one who implements the fullness of the benefits of our salvation in our lives from past to present to future. And so having climbed out of the depths of our sinfulness, Paul now stands upon the mountaintop of God's power and work to declare that because of the work of Christ, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from Christ. Rather, all the worst of this life, all that evil can bring about in our life is to accomplish the purposes of God. What a, what a glorious truth. What a glorious truth in the face of a world where Jesus himself promised that we would have tribulation. All that tribulation can do is to make us look more like Jesus, which is the ultimate destiny of those who have trusted in Jesus. And so Paul says in Romans 
8.38, coming to the end of these glorious verses. He says, For I am sure that neither death, death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so we began separated from God. But God opened the door through the finished work of Jesus. We put our faith in that. We live by faith in Him. And the Spirit is at work sanctifying us. And we will never fall out of His grip. This is the power of the promises of God. However, however, as much as we want to close the book there, for some reason, Paul in chapters 9 through 11, begins to talk about Israel. Why would he talk about Israel after he has just climbed up Mount Everest? Well, if God's power cannot fulfill his promises to Israel because they rejected the Messiah, how can we, sure, how can we be sure that the gospel is the power of God for us? How can we be sure that there is no condemnation if Israel stands condemned? How can we be sure that we'll never fall out of God's grace if the power of God was not enough to sustain Israel? He begins in verse 1 of chapter 9 by talking about how he has, in verse 2, great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart because of the sake, verse 3 says, of his brothers, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. In these chapters... Paul explains why the Jews missed the promises of God. It's because they tried to reach God in their own works rather than by faith. But God is not finished with them. In fact, as he goes throughout Romans 10 and 11, he talks about that one day God will do such a work in them that all Israel will be saved. You find that declaration at the end of Romans 10 chapter 11. Now, there's many different opinions about what this is going to look like and who this involves and how it's going to happen. But one way or another... Paul sees it as a fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Israel. God didn't forsake his prom for his promises to Israel. God's it's not like God's power is not sufficient. No, this justification for God's power is why Paul wrote Romans 9 through 11. And Paul sees his argument as supremely convincing which is why he ends Romans 11 with this great doxology. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. And once again, we, we want to close the book there. But Paul has one more section for us. The gospel has been described in chapters 1 through 8, defended in chapters 9 through 11, and now the gospel is put on display in the individuals who have put their trust in him in, in chapters 12 through 16. So because God's power has been unleashed through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and through the Spirit and his work within us, because God's power will one day complete its work in us in eternity, because God has given us life both here and into eternity, Paul tells us that we are meant to live each day in view of the mercies of God 
The mercies of God, the gospel, needs to be at the forefront of our minds. And so as we fix our eyes on the truths of God's word and his promises, he makes us into a people marked by love. Love for the broken culture around us. Love for our governing authorities, no matter how wicked they might be. Love for the church. Love for God's plan, which is being fulfilled through our ministry. The work of sanctification that Paul rejoiced in in Romans chapter 8 is not just a work of being made holy, but it's a work of being made into his instruments. As we present ourselves, remember Romans chapter 6, as we present our members as instruments of righteousness, then the Holy Spirit leads us on a daily basis to flesh out the gospel, to be in consistent community with the local church, and to be on mission with our brothers and sisters in Christ, with the Spirit, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God, that will continue to save people from every tribe and tongue and nation and every age until Jesus returns. This is the mission of the church. This is the purpose of our individual ministries. This is the the usefulness of our spiritual gifts. This is the advancement of the kingdom, the unstoppable kingdom that is fueled by the power of God through the finished work of Christ, by the Spirit of God, applying the Word of God in the people of God, making them a lighthouse to the nations. As we said earlier, It was through this very love and power that the Christians in Rome endured persecution and eventually came to see the entire culture changed. And this very message, this in some ways simple message, in this extremely profound book, is the good news in every age that we must proclaim. We cannot lose faith in the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. In every generation, there are some who say, but we need more. It's too simple. The culture's changed. We need to adjust the message of the gospel. Friend, we may need to contextualize the message of the gospel, but the truths of the gospel must remain the same, for they are the power of God. And never let us forget that God has chosen what is foolish in this world to shame the wise, and what is weak in this world to shame the strong. It is not by our might or eloquence or political power or church building size or anything else that the gospel goes forth, but it is by the Holy Spirit empowering the church. And you are, you are a member of that church if you are, have indeed put your faith in Jesus Christ. And so let me ask you, I mentioned at the outset of this message that the book of Romans provides an outline for your personal testimony of how you have encountered Jesus and how God has imparted his righteousness to you. And so I want to ask you, have you ever written down your testimony of how you experienced God's grace? What did God save you from? How did he unleash his power in your life? How has he sustained you and caused your trials and tribulations to work for his glory 
How have you rebelled against him and yet he has remained steadfast? How has he gifted you and mobilized you to have a ministry of love to others? Friend, this is not this is not just a reason to write down your salvation testimony, but this is a reason to keep a journal of the victories that God has won in your life. Despite the struggle, victory over the past, victory in the present, and victory coming in its fullness in the future is the testimony of every believer. This is your story. This is your song. Praising your Savior all the day long, both now and forevermore. May God give us the grace to believe the gospel and to live it out each and every day.